morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our study going verse by verse through Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, beginning at the end of verse 16 and going all the way through verse 18. But while you're at it, you also want to stick a pinky in Psalm 143, because we're going to detour there for a little bit and then come back for the rest of our study this morning. This is God's word. And we as his people should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at the end of verse 16. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we do so in the name of Jesus. Because he and he alone is worthy. Lord, you have exalted him to the highest name in the cosmos, seen or unseen. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of praise. Father, he is righteous the only obedient son. And Father, you are pleased by his obedience. And in love, he delights to serve you, even still mediating the blessed covenant of grace, standing in the place that y'all agreed to before the foundations of the world as our deliverer, as our mediator, as our king. God, be glorified this morning, not only by the songs that we sing, but by the truth that we herald. This blessed gospel of grace and freedom that come from you, that only come from you. Lord, we ask you to do this in his name, pleading only his life, his death, and the vindication of his resurrection, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. It's a joy to be here on Reformation Sunday. It's a great joy to have the troops with us and to celebrate the work of God, the breath of God moving on the peninsula. We are in a time where godly curriculum is very needed. Godly teachers, very needed. And yes, as Justin and I dreamed together long, long ago, even godly administrators called and equipped for the next generation that they too would grow up and 
train and live in the church. I give you great thanks and praise. Yeah. And as we remember this morning, we remember that it is a gospel of grace and not a gospel of our own merit. That would be, according to Paul, no gospel, a non-gospel. The gospel of the Bible is one of grace and freedom. It is grace and freedom because the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. So the question that the gospel answers in an ultimate sense is how does a righteous God accept unrighteous people and their worship? How does a righteous God, one filled with all holiness and goodness, accept even the very presence of an unrighteous people? Unrighteous angels removed from his presence, yes? How do we unrighteous people come and have peace with him? When at its very core, we are not like him. Created, of course, in his image, but failing to maintain the fellowship of the covenant that God had established with Adam. And in our union with Adam, we have fallen. It's funny, in our culture, we talk about falling from grace. Okay. I think the Bible doesn't say that we fall from grace. I think we rise by grace from the fall. So in our study, as we're progressing through this pregnant moment where Paul is fighting for the truth of the gospel, even against those who seem so familiar and powerful because of their proximity to it. Works righteousness, probably better described as works unrighteousness by us, is once again creeping in and therefore eliminating the basis of grace. So, Paul, not inventing any new theology, not any new doctrine, is seeking to understand what God has been saying all along. The book of Galatians, contrary to popular discussion, is the book of the Bible with the most Old Testament quotations in it. We often herald Romans as that. And Romans, in many ways, is right up there with it. But you have to understand that there is something in Scripture called principled reference. We are used to specifically word-by-word quotations, yes? If I'm going to quote, you know, Bob Inc. or Machen as I am apt to do, we often do so with the very eye giving attention to precision. And if we jumble their words, we call it a paraphrase of a quotation. 
What's happening here at the end of verse 16 is that the Apostle Paul is referencing a principle that can be found in the Old Testament. In fact, in the early church, it was tied. This line, if you're looking for the receipts, is tied to Psalm 143. Asking and answering the question, how does an unrighteous person like David or you or I receive deliverance from a righteous God. So let's turn to Psalm 143. We're not going to go through all of it. I encouraged you last week and continue to this week. Study it as a whole. But for our purposes, understand that this psalm begins while David is in crisis. Now, we spent a couple of years looking at David coming in and out of crisis after crisis after crisis, yes? So this should ring familiar to us as a congregation. But if you're here for the first time or for the first time in a long time, you don't need to fear. It will become evident, I hope. But David is beginning this psalm in a circumstance of crisis. And there are really two elements to the crisis David is in. The first is, he is physically being pursued by his enemies. Whether that's those who are warring against Israel, or even the one who warred from the throne of Israel in pursuit of David. But he is pursued by his enemies. And the second... David is tormented by guilt, which I know none of us in this room deal with guilt on any level, right? We're all guilt-free all the time. Tongue firmly fixed in cheek. So I think we can identify with David here in that he is being pursued by his enemies and that he's internally being tormented and tortured by his own guilt, just analysis of his guiltiness. So, as the psalm opens, we will see that this psalm principally is a cry for help. It's David asking for deliverance despite deserving divine judgment. It's David asking for deliverance Despite, despite, not because of, but despite the fact that he's deserving of God's divine justice. Listen to his opening line. Hear my prayer, David writes, O Yahweh. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness. Verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant, though he deserves it in full. For no one living is righteous before you. What David is understanding here is that there is no one who obeys the law of God perfectly. And that is the exact point 
that the Apostle Paul is referencing in verse 16 in his letter to the churches of Galatia in chapter 2. What he's saying is, by the works of the law, no one can stand in your presence and say, I deserve to be here. By the principles of your law, by the line-by-line analysis of your commands, I am in the right place with you, says none, until Christ comes and he'll get to say that. But for our purposes at this point, there are none righteous on the earth. So here's David crying out, understanding that he deserves judgment, but asking God for mercy. Because if there were no mercy, there could not be a people of God. There could not be, for no one living is righteous before you. It is a righteous God's assessment of the thoroughness of our inadequacy. None stand before him vindicated. None look at the law and go perfect. No problem. And that is why Paul concludes by works of the law no one is justified. No one has right standing with God on the basis of their own works. Works, righteousness can never stand, let alone topple the wall of sin that separates. According to Isaiah 59, verse 2, We are separated from God relationally, physically, spiritually because we have union in the fall with Adam. And from that fallen estate, no one living is righteous. So David here is making an appeal. He's appealing to God for his salvation. It's the basis of his appeal that I think we can easily overlook. Most of us appeal for God's mercy because, insert human reason. I tried. Isn't that a common reason? Well, how can God hold me accountable? I mean, I did my best. But your best doesn't clear the wall, does it? Well, I was sincere. I sincerely tried. It wasn't just that I tried, I was sincere in my trying. And the human heart is never deceitful. Oh, wait. Maybe we need his assessment and not ours. David is appealing to God for his salvation. That is good and common. When you are in trouble, do you not cry out? When the constraints of life and circumstance squeeze you, do you not cry out? It's the basis for David's appeal that's unique here because he's appealing God's righteousness. 
not his own. Listen to it again. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness? Don't we almost always swap your to my? Lord, hear my plea. I. Insert action. Insert inward desire. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. This is wild. When we are rattled with guilt, how often is it that we cry out for God's righteous judgment? Don't we want like an escape route from righteous judgment? It's almost like the last thing we want is, Lord, according to your perfections, judge me. (laughs) I don't think there's anybody so brazen as to say that in this room. But his appeal is made to the righteousness of God. Listen, he presses in on this. Enter not into judgment with your servant. Wait, didn't you just call for that? He did, but hang on. No one living is righteous before you. In other words, you keep your word. And your word promises deliverance. Your word to us is one of rescue. Of no longer being enslaved in the chains of our unrighteousness. David is not even trying to present his own righteousness because he knows that his best won't hold up in the very courtroom of heaven. But why? Why won't it hold up in heaven? Because God's righteous. But David sees something here we so often don't. Because God is righteous, God is the only one who could deliver David. David has no earthly hero to look for or trust in. He's not going to trust in himself. He's tortured with his own guilt. And he's looking among the crowds and he knows that if there's deliverance and salvation for him, it will not come from him. Or anyone like him. Because God is righteous, God's the only deliverer. And that is why David cries out to God in truth. David offers no bribe, David offers no excuse. He's saying, you alone have the power to deliver me. You alone have the wisdom for ordaining all of these events. You and you alone are good. And in that goodness, you have promised. Not by my merits, but by yours. David is pressing God on God's own righteousness. David leans in when most of us lean away. We don't want a righteous God to see us because we don't really know his righteousness. See, Psalm 143 is a psalm for the justified sinner. 
That's why I hope it's devotionally gripping for you. See the appeal in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Yahweh. For your name's sake, O covenant-keeping God. For your name's sake, covenant-making God. Preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Is David trusting in his effort? Is he trusting in his sincerity? Is he trusting in his piety? I alone slayed Goliath, right? I stood when everyone else sat. I ran towards your enemy. I conquered. How many evildoers have I slain? The blood of the unrighteous at the sword tip. For your name's sake, how many times has David been an avenue of deliverance, a signal of hope, a beacon that the dynasty of God's favor will last forever and ever and ever? Jesus Christ sits on the Davidic throne. Why doesn't David plead any of that? Because God gets the glory for those deliverances. David's not hoping in the power of his fist. It was God who drew a rock from the stream, yes? It was God who had mercy. David knows what it is to be delivered by the mercies of God. Some of which he could not even explain. David, like us, is an unrighteous man, saved, rescued, delivered, redeemed by the gift of God's righteousness. That's what David is pressing here. That's what Paul is giving reference to here. This principled reference helps us understand not only the significance of what is happening, but also the way in which it is to happen. We too are saved only as a gift, yes? Some of you might not be familiar with this little discipleship tool. It's called the Westminster Standards. If you want, you can look around. There'll be some in the seat back pockets around you. If you don't own one of these, please take it. It's our gift to you. This is not scripture. Let's be real clear and up front. This is not God's word. This was written by a council of men over about seven year period in England. But everything in here is justified because of its attachment to the principles and quotes in Scripture. So this is trustworthy only in as far as it is built upon and ties to what Scripture says. Amen? It's also the most underrated discipleship tool I know of. This is, let me say it, 
outside of the Bible, the greatest discipleship tool I've ever encountered. If I could turn this into digital media somehow, it's about the only way I can imagine one-upping it. Because digital media is more powerful even than the printing press. But there's a question in here that I think helps us. If you want to turn to question 33 in the shorter catechism, I want you to see this come to life, and then we'll see it come to life in the scripture. So, the Westminster Divines ask this question. What is justification? In this appeal that David is making that's based solely on the righteousness of God, why does he think he has peace with God? What on earth gives him the right basis, grounding, legal, to ask God for anything? What is the basis by which he would even be allowed to approach God to ask him? It's God's righteousness. That which most of us initially see as a reason to flee. Right? Peter face down with the flopping fish in Luke 5, begging Jesus to go away. Why? Because he's righteous and he has a command of creation that Peter has never imagined. And Peter knows, I am not like him. He's got to go. David is saying, I am not like him. Hallelujah. Instead of being caused to run away, it should be the greatest cause to run towards God. That's what the gospel in a very ultimate sense enables. We who should run because of the righteousness of God, do so not away, but to. So the the divines are trying to ask this summary thought, the very question that the Reformation itself was built on, the very question that is at stake in Galatia at this very hour when Paul is writing this letter. What is justification? Answer, justification is an act. Notice, this is a statement of action. Also notice, it's a singular event. It's not acts. It's one act. It's an act of God's free grace. The free here is as much God's as the grace is. It is an act of God's free grace. Well, how so? How how does this work? Well, they write, wherein he pardons all our sins. You guys don't want to whoop on that one? You ain't excited? Your sins are pardoned? Man, you guys are frozen chosen. He pardons some of our sins. Some? A few? Many? All. All, all, all. What about what you did on, yes, all. 
Well, what if I yes all? There is no question you can ask of his justification wherein Christ's blood does not satisfy the demands. It's not, I plead the blood of Christ and. Well, then you forfeited the blood. That's what Paul is saying here. It is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins. That would be more than enough for whooping and hollering, yes? How much more as he continues? He accepts us as what? I'm sorry, as what? But he knows we're unrighteous. Just as we know we're unrighteous. How does a righteous God assess us, here's the question, wrongly? Or does he? Doesn't he need a reason apart from our performance, apart from our desire, apart from the best or worst we have to offer? Yes, yes, yes. How could we be seen as righteous in this whole deal? I made you say all, a bunch. Can I get an only? Can I get one more? Thank you. Only because, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What's the basis? That a righteous God can assess an unrighteous people righteously and have peace with them. Someone else's righteousness must be that basis. It's the coming Messiah. Christ, Messiah. It was the long-promised Redeemer, the long-promised Redeeming kinsman or kinsman redeemer. The long promised priest, king, prophet for whom he and he alone is fit to rule all created things. See, when we say we get to go and plead before a righteous God, we do so because that righteous God came and entered into the covenant, not just as giver of covenant, but as obedient meritor of its demands. Jesus earned all blessings. Based on the life of Jesus Christ, is he justified according to the law of God? Can you point to his error? Can you say he fell short in any way? No, the New Testament echoes the chorus. He who was without sin, punished as sinner. Who's the sinner in that equation? But me, you, us, we. We offer only sin, and Christ receives it in exchange for his righteousness. And that is a righteousness that is not imparted to us. It is imputed 
to us. Now, that's a new word for most of us, or it's a word we hear, you know, annually. What does it mean? How many of you had a wise father or uncle, a wise grandmother or friend, and when they would offer you their wisdom, they would, as we often say, impart it to you, right? My dad gave me some of the best wisdom I've ever been given in my whole life. He taught me when we were pregnant with Savannah a long time ago at the foundation of this church, actually, that the same is not equal in parenting. That your kids will need different things at different times. And if your effort is to only extend the same to one that you offered the other, you will miss some of the most important elements of your parenting. Now, Am I advocating injustice? Was my dad advocating injustice? No, he was advocating targeted mercy. Specific grace and mercy. Specific needs met with specific progression. Excuse me. Specific needs met with very specific What's that word? Oh, well. Provision. That's why I keep Lori around. It's provision. So we have, as mankind, we are in need of a provision. We need God to provide a righteousness for us that we could never endeavor to accomplish for ourselves. So when we see them explaining that the only ground for our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, it's distinct from that which can be imparted. Because I could have said, my dad's an old man and he's dumb. My dad doesn't know anything. My brother and I didn't turn out well. Why would I take advice from him? Or I might say, Dad, I think that's good advice, but. And when someone offers you wisdom, aren't you free to take all of it? Some of it? None of it? That is not what imputed means. Imputed is something that happens over you and thereby to you, not based on your offer not based on your power or willingness or intellect. Christ's righteousness is imputed to you by faith. That's how they finish this answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed, not imparted, to us, received by faith alone. That clause begins with only and ends with alone. Are they saying many? No. So, I would encourage you in your Christian discipleship to come to the catechism and seek its deep and wise truths, understanding its limitations. This is how John Calvin 
at the height of the Reformation in Europe, describes it. He says, we are justified before God in no other way than by faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great gospel? We're justified in no other way than by faith in Jesus Christ. So if we return to Galatians, we've seen this principled reference in David's life. We've heard from church history the the way in which the church has once again recaptured this sacred and eternal truth. Then we see this weird set of verses in 17 and 18. If we in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That totally comes from left field, yes? how, How does that have anything to do with works righteousness? Well, in Paul's willingness to say no human righteousness but Christ's is our righteousness before God, And the Judaizers, right, this James gang coming from Jerusalem, are saying, but God's word says, Jews and Gentiles don't have table fellowship. God's word says there should be a barrier between Jews and Gentiles, and you break that law in your fellowshipping at dinner. It's fine if God wants to be so merciful as to invite all the outsiders inside, but if they are going to be inside, then they need to learn to live like insiders and obey the law, get circumcised. What Paul hears them saying, return to the slavery from which you were freed. In the same way that Israel kept wanting to go back to Egypt, and that boggles our minds. Like you're three weeks out of the Red Sea crossing and Pharaoh's army drowning, and you're like, you know, we had it pretty good in Egypt. Really? We return to our slavery so easily. So in the eyes of the Judaizers, this wall that they tore down between Jew and Gentile should be rebuilt. Right? You were wrong is what the Judaizers are saying. You had no right to tear down that wall. God's word says. Jews and Gentiles can only have fellowship if the Gentiles learn to live like Jews. I didn't get an amen. Do you see how subtle and how bold this is? 
God says there's none righteous. So he comes and accomplishes everything the ceremonial laws point to. He comes and says, Israel, you are not to be a nation in this divine sense. I'm not making a commentary on Palestine. We can do that another time. Not in the pulpit right now, okay? So Israel on the news and Israel that I'm talking about are two different things. If you want to talk about that more, my phone's available to you. Jews and Gentiles don't mix. Gentiles can become Jews. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. That's what they're saying. They're saying the law of God reveals that you guys are sinners. So therefore, Jesus must be promoting sin. Jesus must be adding sin to your life because he's teaching you to do what God says you shouldn't do. So we ask, is Jesus Christ in the business of promoting sin? And Paul answers, 17b, certainly not. God forbid. Heck no, no way. Here's the thought behind the statement. Is God's grace on us to be blamed for our guilt before the law? Is that the gospel? No, that's blasphemy. When God justifies sinners by faith, he is not aiding and abetting their sin. If I'm a sinner, after I become a Christian, newsflash, you are, then it is my fault for my sin, not God's. It ultimately comes down to this triplicate. Paul is saying, in order for us to have peace with God, Believers must believe on Christ. Then they are justified before God, and then they immediately proceed to keep God's law. You got that? One, two, three. Believe on Christ, justified before God, and then proceed to keep God's law. The Judaizers have the same three points, they're just out of order. They say, believe on Christ, keep the law, and you'll be justified before God. That is humanity's pride talking. I need God's help a little. I've literally heard thousands of college students pray that prayer. God, I'm trying I just need you to make up the difference between my righteousness and yours. And I can amen that prayer, but not for the reason they think. Because I have a different evaluation of their righteousness, yes? I'm like, you goose-egged that one, buddy. That's a zero on the test. And you get Jesus' hundred. There's another way we also must see this. Not only do we believe on Christ and then are justified and in the glory, beauty, and power of that justification proceed to keep the law, part of keeping the law is offense on our immorality, not a reason for God's favor. You with that? 
This is why I know this is what he's talking about. Look at verse 18. Maybe it will now make sense. This was the hardest verse in the whole letter for me for like seven years. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. When did I transgress? We would say, well, the transgression is in the building. But that's not what Paul's addressing. Paul's addressing the Judaizers who are saying Jesus promotes sin and disobedience to the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. I don't know how he promotes something that is not him. If I rebuild what I tear down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if I come back to the law and what I can build in the building blocks of self-righteousness, works righteousness, then what I'm proving is that when I scattered the blocks down, I was wrong. If you tear it down and then you build it back exactly as it was, you shouldn't have torn it down. That's what Paul's saying here. That in your fleshly, prideful thirst for your own righteousness, not the alien one that Jesus gives you, then you're going to find ways to build a wall back. That, to us, would be a transgression. But to the Judaizers, it would be a vindication. They would say, yeah, we told you you were doing it wrong. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, later on, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he also describes this as a wall of hostility between the races, between the cultures and languages and religions and desires and efforts of man to identify ourselves by anything other than the obedience of Christ, the death of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, forget the wall. It does not exist outside of the sin in your own heart. Men and women and children from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation are drawn together in the worship of the glory of God. Listen to how Machen references this. If just after tearing a thing down, I proceed to build it up again, I confess by my action that I did wrong in tearing it down. I confess that my tearing it down was transgression. But Peter and Paul have both stopped trusting in their own obedience to the law of God as the basis for their right standing with God. Paul is specifically pointing out to Peter in this confrontation to his face that he can't compel the Gentiles to try and uphold or keep the very law Peter himself has stopped trusting in for his own salvation. Now, someone might call me a liberal. They're wrong. 
not in a political sense, but by saying that you could quote the word of God and be out of bounds. I would just say the devil does it. He throws scripture at Jesus and Jesus throws what back at him? Yes, hallelujah. Do we revere the word of God here? Do we take it as seriously as we ever know how? So what's the application here? The dividing wall of hostility between you and others is gone. The only distinction that remains in a righteousness sense, in a redemption sense, in a salvific sense, is the righteousness of Christ that we share together. So gospel fellowship, table fellowship, is open to Jew and Gentile because you arrive based on the same thing. Not your own righteousness, not your own effort, not who your great-grandfather was or what he did. Plead as David pleads. I pray for salvation by your righteousness. You, O oh God, are righteous. So give to me what I could never produce for myself. An alien righteousness, an outside righteousness. And in that sense, forever and ever until we see him face to face, Christians must accept one another on the same basis that God has accepted them. That's what we mean when we say God is no respecter of persons. He does not show partiality. Faith is like an empty, open hand stretching out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking you to bless the preaching of your word, asking that silly things like wooden blocks and quotes from old would realign our thinking, change our hearts, reinstitute and renew and strengthen us. God, we ask for your power, we ask for your wisdom, and we ask for your goodness to be on display now and evermore. And all God's people agree.